Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're looking at perhaps Ireland's greatest poet, W.B. Yeats, on this, the centenary of him winning the Nobel Prize for Literature, and we'll be debating his life and his considerable legacy. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we explored the Cleary's archive and found out about the history of an iconic Dublin building. And we also heard about the different legends around the life of Alexander. Alexander the Great. And if you want to listen back to this or any of our older shows, just go to the News Talk app powered by Go Loud, our website newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Tonight's debate is on WB Yeats. On the 14th of November 1923, WB Yeats, a senator in the new Irish Free State, was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature, and he considered it an international welcome to the newly independent state. In tonight's show, we want to look at some aspects of the life of the poet, especially his politics and the events of 100 years ago, his views of the occult, the story of his sisters who were often neglected and ignored, as well as the significance of Yeats and his family to Ireland and the world. And to help me do this, I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Professor Roy Foster is Emeritus Professor of Irish History at the University of Oxford. One of our greatest historians, literary critics and public intellectuals, he is the author of an acclaimed authorised two-volume biography of W.B. Yeats. Dr. Lucy Collins is Associate Professor of Modern Poetry at University College Dublin, a co-founder of the Irish Poetry Reading Archive, a national digital repository. She is an expert on 20th century literature and poetry and poetics. Dr. Adrian Patterson is a lecturer in English at the University of Galway and the president of Modernist Studies Ireland, an expert on 18th, 19th and 20th century literature, from birdsong to broadcasts, pianos to poems. He has a particular interest in the artistic interactions and media of modernism and Irish literature. Professor Margaret Harper is Glucksman Professor in Contemporary Writing in English at the University of Limerick and has served as the director of the Yates International Summer School and the president of the International Yates Society. A specialist on W.B. Yeats, especially his occult life and work, she is the author of Wisdom of Two, and she has also produced scholarly editions of the Yeats's automatic writing and other occult experiments and the two versions of Yeats's book of esoteric philosophy, A Vision. Well, you're all very welcome. And later in the show, I'll be talking to Susan O'Keefe, the director of Yeats Society Sligo and who is an award winning journalist, TV producer and director and also a former senator just like Yeats. Well, as I say, you are all very welcome. But Roy, I might begin with you and go back in time to 100 years ago, because in 1923, Yeats was a senator. He was one of the first senators appointed uh, when the, the new Irish state came into into being in December 1922. And then at the end of the year, he won the Nobel Prize for Literature. So I was just wondering, what did all of this mean for Yeats? What did it mean for Ireland? Well, he was acutely conscious, Patrick, that it was an honour for Ireland as well as for him. And when he went to receive his Nobel Prize in Stockholm, he very deliberately and and specifically related the um, creation of an independent Ireland to the recognition of himself and his contemporaries as people whose cultural enterprise had in a way midwifed that independence. That's why to our eye, rather oddly, when he spoke accepting his Nobel, he see, he gave the impression that he was accepting it on behalf of the Abbey Theatre and for his work as a playwright, which I think nobody in their right mind would think that his work as a playwright outranks his work as a poet. But he chose to emphasise that side of his achievement because it involved bringing in John Milton Singh, Augusta Gregory, the whole world of cultural revival that the Abbey Theatre represented. I think that's sometimes an under-attended part of it when people look at what he was doing with his Nobel. He's also at a key point in his life when he's approaching 60, when he's rethinking his work. And it's interesting that only the year before, he's been at the Irish Race Congress in Paris, and he's 
seen James Joyce, he's seen Ezra Pound, he's seen the writers who both contributed to his astonishing development into modernism and who also still look to him as a great master. So he's um, he, he's at a key point in his life, but he realises it's also a key point in Ireland's life. And he's, he's been conscious ever since his youth as a young romantic nationalist in the 1880s and 90s. He's been conscious of matching his own creative progression and the, the projection of his own work into the wider world, matching that with the advance of Ireland to cultural and eventually political independence. And Roy, how much did it mean for him to be a senator? Because he did make some very important, significant speeches, especially uh, the famous one on divorce. He seems to have used it as a platform to to talk about the arts and politics and, and other things that were significant to him. How meaningful was it for him to have been a senator? I think it meant a lot because he he, he would later in a wonderful poem among, among schoolchildren refer to himself as a smiling public man, one of the great phrases he's given to the, the language. But um, it meant a lot to him to be a public man. And it meant a lot to him to be connected to power. He said once that he was proud of all that connected his family to th- those who held power in Ireland, which is quite a sensitive thing to say, considering he came from a Protestant declined ascendancy, but still ascendancy background. But he was determined not to be apologetic about this. The Senate gave him a uh, a forum in which to make these points. And as you say, Patrick, his speech on divorce, which reads with an astonishing modernity today, wasn't the only thing in which he was very prescient. He was prescient about Ireland's built heritage. He was saying that something must be done to preserve the Royal Hospital Kilmainham back in the 1920s when it was being let become a mouldering wreck. He realised that the importance and the valency of Ireland's history in material things as well as in cultural things. And to read his Senate speeches, which have been paid attention to by scholars like David Fitzpatrick, is to read a voice that we can can and should still listen to, I think. And Adrian, of course, 1923, Ireland was still in the middle of a a brutal civil war. And, you know, Yeats wasn't, you know, completely removed from that either because it was going on all around him. That's quite right. Yeah, it's it's interesting that at that period... uh, in 1922, he's in the summer of 1922. He's in um, Tor Balalee, uh, newly renovated in South Galway, um, uh, writing a poem called "Meditations in Time of Civil War," which uh, speaks in a kind of playful but also very serious tone about um, the two warring forces, um, uh, which are kind of present. Uh, in Ireland at that time in the West. He for, he talks about it as a summer of kind of calm with the children, his wife, and um, the major inconvenience is not getting letters. But occasionally something happens, you know, the, the regulars come along and say, excuse me, Mr. Yates, can we blow up your bridge, please? And they indeed go and blow up his bridge, which is an inconvenience because it was the major thoroughfare through at that time. <laughs> so many other bridges were blown up. And then it blocks the river and so on. So they have flooding when he has to leave the tower. It's a kind of interesting time. There's a... But yes, Roy's quite right. The... The idea of him becoming a senator becomes very important to him personally and professionally, but it also makes him a kind of marked man. So by the time he's back in Dublin towards the end of 1922, um, he's uh, a target, as Oliver St. John and others were. As, as a senator, he's kind of a, a public representative of the new free state. And there's a really interesting letter from um, his sister, uh, Elizabeth Corbett Yates, known by the family's Lolly, in early January 1923, which is talks about her concern for him. Uh, at that point, Yates is actually, I think he's just gone to London. Um, but at that time, he had he had a house in Merrion Square and had an armed guard um, and was considering moving out his, um, well, any valuable paintings and goods in case there was a bomb or something thrown. So, And at some point, he does get bullets through the windows. And his, his sister's really interesting letter, it says, and she's just writing... The problem of correspondence this time is there's often postal strikes or no post at all or no stamps or no ability to get things. It's sort of it's really interesting to read the letters that period because people kind of carry on in wartime and it's they talk about the inconvenience but also the danger bleakly. And she says, we can now get stamps again and post parcels and letters. This is to a correspondent in America um, who's interested in the cooler press, which she's, she's running at that time. Um, but the telephone is not yet in order. I tell you this so you can realise the conditions under which we carry on. The barracks was also burnt to the ground the same night. At least the walls stand, but the roof has fallen in. The civic guard were first turned out at the point of the revolver. 
Then last night there were three dreadful explosions, houses and people belonging in some way to the government blown up with mines. We are very anxious about brother WB, as he is a senator. His house is in Merrion Square, just beside the government buildings, especially dangerous place. And he has removed all his pictures and books to a place of safety and now has a guard at night. With many thanks, Elizabeth C. Yates. It turns out that the guards quite enjoyed coming there. They came early and early in the day. They were sort of due to be there at night time, about six o'clock or something, but they start turning up at five and four, I think because they got a nice warm fire and tea from uh, Mrs. Yates, George Yates, <laughs> who was uh, a, a good host to them in this kind of rather conspicuously grand building um, from the 1740s or something in Marion Square. But it, it suggests, I think, two things. I mean, the potential for danger, very real potential for danger, but also this kind of sense in which they're determined to carry on, you know, and just, just kind of get through this sort of stuff. And there's a really touching letter between George Yates and WB when he's in London. She writes to him saying, you know, I've been very nervous about all these things. They have two young children after all. It's not just um, herself and her husband she's worried about. But she says, well, you are my whole world and I, know, I somehow feel sure that you'll be all right. So that, you know, this gives me optimism for the future. And he writes back and says, gosh, you never write about emotions or anything. You haven't said anything about your emotions. It's the first time you've said anything like that in years and you've filled my, my world with light. So it's a kind of really nice moment in, in time of war where people are uh, reconnecting, let's say. Margaret, it's interesting listening to Adrian there talking about Elizabeth, talking about uh, Yates's wife as well, that they're maybe part of the story that don't always get much attention, his, his sisters, his wife. Yeah, I think that's true. I've I've sort of thought for years that um, George Yates, Yates's wife, is in the curious position of kind of being the other woman in his life, um, despite the fact that she was, as Adrian said, the the devoted mother of his children, and um, she took a lot of care of his business life as well. Um, she was British, um, so it's especially interesting, I think, that she's completely committed to being in Ireland during this time of war, um, she could lead and doesn't, um, doesn't think about it really. Yeah, she's raising two young children. She's, she's being his kind of a public presence uh, in the house when he's, when he's gone. His sisters also are receiving a lot more attention now than they have done before. And I, I might just let Lucy talk more about Elizabeth Corbett and Susan Mary and the Kula Industries. But they were Amazing, really. The Yates's were um, a family in which every member of their four siblings surviving, uh, W.B., Jack, the two sisters who were called Lily and Lolly, every one of them made a living in the arts at this time in Ireland, which was, um, well, Jack was in England. But it's sort of astonishing to think that single women could make a living in the arts in this place. George was a fascinating person, and she brings up another aspect of Yeats's life that's going on kind of in the background, a sort of a base note to all of the public life that he's doing, that he's engaging in, in this period, which is the um, occult experiment. They, too, are getting more, um, they're more widely known now than they used to be. But for example, the beautiful poem, Meditations in Time of Civil War, there are mentions of the occult, the, the emblems that the poet looks for in the midst of the public moment. And Margaret, I'm interested in teasing out the occult, but first, you know, it's interesting the way uh, Yeats's wife, George Georgie, was for a long time dismissed as a, a poor choice for his to be his romantic partner, a, a poor literary collaborator. But actually, even just looking at, you know, your work or, you know, Terence Brand's entry in the Dictionary of Irish Biography, you know, describing her as a confidant, typist, critic, editor, translator, research assistant, proofreader. She goes on to be his literary executor. She is a very significant part of his story in this period. Yeah, she's a very significant part of his story from 1914 till the end of his life. Uh, another really interesting set of letters to look at are the letters that they um, wrote to each other, which have been edited by Anne Saddlemeyer. They had a very intimate, easy, chatty relationship. They're, they're both funny. Uh, they're a lot funnier than Yeats's public work uh, suggests. Um, yeah, George was uh, brilliant. I have seen marginalia in, I think it, I counted up once, I think it was seven different languages um, in her, 
in her library of material. She did work with him. She also managed raising children and uh, running his household affairs. And it is also true that because she was much younger than he, and she lived a lot longer than he did, she sort of managed Yeats's aftermath. So to a great extent, the image of this poet and playwright and public figure that we think of when we think of W.B. Yeats is a creation of George Yeats. She let people see certain things. She didn't let other people see them. Um, and in a very subtle way, managed the, the reputation of her husband for years after his death. Lucy, the two sisters, they were involved in creative activities, but they were also involved in business as well because they were running Kula. There was the industries part, there was the, the press part. And how, how significant was that as a creative business and, and how successful were they in running them? Well, it was extremely significant. Uh, and of course, we see it as more significant now, perhaps, because we're looking at the achievements of Kula in the light of, first of all, a larger awareness of the history of print, um, in, not just in Ireland, of course, but in, in a wider world. Um, and the, the attention they gave to design, um, the way in which they combined some of the values or aesthetics of the handmade um, with contemporary work um, was really interesting. But I think in, in terms of their, their biographical position, I suppose, um, in keeping with many women of their generation, they had a difficult path to follow if they wished to forge any kind of public role for themselves. Uh, and their position was especially acute, I suppose, because, uh, as we know, John Butler Yeats uh, was not financially adept. So um, the family did not have a, a firm financial footing that they could draw on um, for their, their business endeavours. Um, and they also, of course, had their mother, um, Susan Yates, who had a prolonged period of ill health. And of course, typically for that generation, there would have been some pressure, a kind of a moral pressure, I suppose, on, on daughters um, to take care of uh, family members. So in many ways, they were really uh, forging um, an innovative path in stepping into first, um, as they did into the arts and crafts milieu in London, um, where they received training in the William Morris uh, workshops. And so they had that connection. And those connections, of course, were really useful to them in terms of setting up the business. Um, but there's always, I think, that conflict when we read about um, the history of Dunemer and then of Kula, of that sense of, on the one hand, um, a strong aesthetic that underpinned the work, um, a desire to produce art that was both beautiful and useful, um, the, the project of... Um, um, of educating the girls, the young women who worked for them, which was really important and, of course, had a very important legacy. But also the struggles of making money in that setting. Um, it, you know, as, as we know today, that balance between um, a successful business and something which prioritises your, your own aesthetic goals um, is a challenge and they experienced that challenge. And, of course, the relationship with WB wasn't uh, necessarily an easy one for, for Elizabeth or, or Lolly. Um, she was a strong personality, so she had her own strong views of how the press should be run, um, her own editorial priorities. Um, but of course, it was a symbiotic relationship because a lot of the attention uh, to the press and the sales um, were certainly enhanced by uh, WB's presence, by his own work, of course, as a, a core part of their publishing. Um, but on the other hand, there was that desire for a certain level of independence. Uh, and so there were clashes, there were difficulties um, from time to time in terms of those, those editorial decisions. Um, but there's nonetheless, I think, the case that when we return to Yeats's work, those Kula Press books are such an important aesthetic element of how we approach his work and understand it. I think that shows just how important the sisters' presence was. Roy, I read a fascinating interview with you in The Guardian, I think it was maybe 20 years ago, just before the second volume came out, where you talked about how you were initially frightened investigating Yeats and the occult because it was just something that you weren't really comfortable with and that you had to really put yourself into that mindset and I suppose contextualise it in what was happening in Britain and indeed in Ireland going back a, a very long period. Yes, I did 
um, suggests that there was a certain kind of a cast of mind among Irish Protestant intellectuals and writers that that inclined them towards interest in and even belief in the occult. And I connected him to a line with Bram Stoker, Elizabeth Bowen, Sheridan Le Fanu, various others. But I think also what I decided, especially when I was writing the first volume, was that for Yeats, occult and psychic and spiritualist studies were a kind of university. I think it's very important to remember Yeats is an autodidact. He doesn't go to university. He's an absolutely brilliant mind that is, in a sense, untutored, except by the rather rough and ready education he got in high school Dublin. He he said later that his education was had in his father's studio. His father was one of the great talkers of the age and brilliant letter writer as well, and I think Yeats learned a lot from him. But he also learned by study in the National Library of Ireland in the British Museum and very often of occult and esoteric texts, which disciplined his mind in a certain way, as well as giving him uh, an access into the extraordinary worlds that he projects his poetic imagination, which um, the work of scholars, one of them on this panel, who have really opened up the world of a vision and the world of his occult notebooks, people like Margaret and her father, have really completely revolutionised, I think, our approach to Yeats's occult side. W. H. Auden once referred to it as Yeats's South Californian side, which is typically slightly bitchy Auden-esque thing to say. But I think we can see that it's a great deal more than South California now. It's a it's a way of disciplining a certain body of knowledge and putting it to the purposes of his great creative drive. There's a lot more to say about that, but I'd just like to add a coda to what Lucy said, which I absolutely agree with that the symbiotic relationship between Yeats and his sisters and the press is fascinating. But he did he did provide a lot of money for them. And if we go back to his Nobel Prize, he earmarked some of it to pay Kula's debts and to underwrite their their future. And his late correspondence and his later life shows it was one of the things in his mind. He knew he, he wouldn't live for very much longer in the 30s. And he thought continually about how to ensure the the artistic heritage of the entire family, which, as I think Margaret said, is extraordinary. These these four children were all of them artists, and all of them considerable artists, and all of them people who prioritise their art above making a living, which is the great lesson, the great message they'd learned from their improvident, but I think rather wonderful father. Margaret, can you tell us about some of the, the spiritual and literary collaborations between uh, WB and his wife, George? Because it involves things like automatic writing, and I think you might have to explain that to our listeners. It involves occult experiments. What exactly were they doing? I can certainly talk about that all day. But um, can I also just uh, make one more point about um, what Roy has said about Yeats's learning as, as if the occult was his university um, experiment, as well as his dad's studio. He's absolutely right, of course. Um, and also Roy's theory about the connection between Irish Protestantism and the occult has been a tremendously useful idea for any number of people. Another thing that the occult did for Yeats, right along from the early years to the end of his life, was in a way internationalizing. Yeats was reading Indian philosophy. He was reading Hindu philosophy. He was reading things from, well, Madame Blavatsky and the Theosophical Society, which was an early, um, he, of which he was an early adopter, brought in a kind of mishmash of lots of ideas from various places. The, her idea was that all religion and science were, were one, which meant that Yeats was aware of important thinkers from the Vedic tradition, for example. And he became aware of Japan, and he became aware of many other cultures and took them seriously at a time, again, when in Ireland not everybody was inclined toward that um, kind of of, uh, world global point of view. And this automatic writing, what exactly are we talking about? Yeah, okay, so um, when Yeats married in 1917, uh, he and his wife rather famously decided to experiment with this practice, 
which is you could do it yourself. It's basically sitting down, putting a piece of paper onto your desk, emptying your mind in some ritual way as you would do for um, a meditation practice, whether that would be, you know, from a Christian tradition, from a Jewish Kabbalic tradition, from um, traditions from the Indian subcontinent or whatever, and then see if something writes itself onto your paper. Psychotherapy sometimes uses this technique. Sometimes it does. I I actually, to my regret, have never actually tried this. Um, but it's a, it's a little bit like a Ouija board where presumably you empty your mind and then the the little um the thing that goes around um moves and points to letters in automatic writing george yates and yates emptied their minds george had the piece of paper and she wrote they very soon started a kind of dialogue where there would be questions that he would pose and answers that she would write down it was automatic eh, it was also not automatic these were two brilliant people thinking about ideas that came to coalesce into what Yeats believed was his own or their own or the the system of their moment, um, a philosophical system with some integrity to it. It's philosophical. It's also mythological. It's also psychological. Um, and it was written out in the book that he wrote, A Vision, which he then rewrote, and it makes itself felt in all kinds of his work, much, much of his late poetry and plays. Um, so, for example, the, the poem, The Second Coming, Turning and Turning in the Widening Gyre, well, that gyre is a central symbol of this philosophical system. So that's what automatic writing was. They did it in various ways. Sometimes she would write down. Sometimes the two of them would sleep and wake up and write their dreams down. They kept a number of notebooks. Lots. It's, they did this almost every day for years. This was a very serious enterprise for the two of them. And Adrian, it's kind of hard to reconcile the different Yeatses that we have. We have Yeats, who's very much, you know, a figure who's representing the future and progress and modernity. And then someone who also has these uh, connections with mysticism and the occult. And uh, there is different different faces of Yeats. I agree. It's yeah, it's interesting when to hear Meg talking about it. it I, I like the idea that this is a kind of self-conscious process. It's It shows as well as being uh, a subconscious process, there's something about the revisions and the questioning and the constant, if you like, sanity of these um, uh, papers, which, um, you know, Professor Harper and others have done so much to kind of give to the world, that strikes me as kind of really interesting that I've, I've like Roy and like many others, perhaps I've had the challenge, what do you do? How do you credit this process? What are you trying to do as a, as a in theory, rationalist, as I think I am, um, what am I to do with the idea of spirits and ghosts? And how do I talk about that? How would I think about that? How do I write about that? But I've done it in my own way, sometimes through aesthetics, because Yeats is very often questioning the spirits about particular aspects of art and how art survives. He has a kind of great argument, essentially, with them quite often about what happens when Keats writes his poem to a nightingale and how does that come into the great mind or the great memory of the world if, if no one has read it and if they have read it when do they read it and he has this kind of very complicated but intricate argument about exactly when this process could happen and you realize what he's thinking about is that moment of when you come upon a text that maybe or a, a play or a you know a, a piece of music or something that you haven't seen before but you come upon it in some way that you think there's something about that that speaks to me it's almost as if i've come upon it before I, I'm it's somehow speaking to something that's in my memory as well as my imagination. How do you explain that process? And he, you know, the larger sense is he does it almost in a kind of Jungian way, an idea of collective unconscious, where actually these things are out there and we're just, we're just plucking, we're just looking through a lens of a, of a piece of art to find something that's already there, that's already in the great memory of the world. So in some ways, although it sounds kind of old-fashioned Victorian and Victorian and tabletops and all that, it's actually a very modern idea. It's, it's, you know, it's post-Freud and it's a Jungian idea that we're all actually connected in some important way. And I think, finally, it, it just shows, as 
as others have written about, but it, you know, how much of a collaborator he is. I mean, it's one thing that I think that's overall, it's still, I think, although lots of work has been done on it now, the idea that Yeats is not just a great poet writing those words in which you might seem as if, you know, you've heard them before, they become so familiar that they do speak to you in that way. He's also a collaborator. He's a collaborator with his wife. He's a collaborator with his sisters, with a whole series of, I mean, actually, usually women, with uh, uh, Florence Farr, the actress, with Augusta Lady Gregory. Um, he, that's, in a sense, he's a kind of cultural revolutionary. His whole family, a series of cultural revolutionaries that I think are incredibly modern. And in, in his, I, I don't think you can call Yeats... Um, feminist in in the modern sense but i think you can say that he valued the intellectual and artistic input of women and that's quite clear through his whole life he's always involved in collaborating with dancers or musicians or other people like that and that seems to me makes him very modern along with this idea that actually the carrying on of these traditions whether it's through aesthetic means or kind of educational means really really are important um he's when he accepts the Nobel Prize, as we've heard, he accepts it on behalf of the Abbey Theatre. And as Roy said, that seems surprising to us that Yeats wasn't known as a playwright. But actually, in some ways, um, his poetry has not yet translated through Europe yet in some ways. I mean, the translations, but to read a translation of a poem is to, you know, listen to something a bit off key, isn't it? It doesn't quite work. But you can actually, his plays are already being translated into Italian. Um, his work, rather like, oddly enough, Joyce, uh, his his it's first known in Italy as a playwright, really, of all these things. It seems surprising to us now. There's an exhibition currently on at the University of Galway, actually curated by Antonio Bibo, who's who's sort of made clear that some of these things have actually come through the versions that we get of these artists in, in Europe are often very different from the ones we have here. Eventually, of course, Yeats is really much known as a poet, but at that time he's a playwright along with Lady Gregory and Singh and these others. And I think... His influence and his importance is in the possibilities of collaboration in art, not just as a singular, solitary genius. I think that picture is, is, however true that ever was, it's very much nuanced by the idea of he and his family and his group of workers carrying on a process of art, which I think is really inspiring potentially because it does something for us now. Like what you know, what do we do in times of cultural and uh, political hardship where there's not much money to go around? Do we? spend any money in the arts to be doing anything with that you know and i think the idea the answer is yes we collect together we band together and we create something new and making it new in that sense which is ezra pound's phrase yeah it's great friend is, is something that we should all be doing and be involved in i think he's a he's a great kind of example and symbol of that well tonight we are looking at the life and legacy of wb yates we're going to take a quick break now when we come back i'll be talking to susan o'keefe the director of yates society sligo about how yates is remembered and indeed celebrated so stay with us here on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we look at the life and legacy of WB Yeats. And I'm delighted to be joined now by Susan O'Keefe, the director of Yeats Society Sligo. She's an award-winning journalist, TV producer and director, a former senator just like Yeats, and is the founder and chair of Yeats Day, as well as the founder and former chair of the year-long national and international celebration of WB Yeats's 150th birthday. Susan, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you very much indeed. Delighted to be with you. We began the show talking about 1923 and uh, Senator Yates being awarded the, the Nobel Prize for Literature in November. And that's a crucial event for uh, your society, Yates Society Sligo, because I think you're the lead agency for that commemoration and celebration. Yes, we're delighted to be part of the official decade of centenaries, which of course will end actually this year, 1923. And in a way, it's lovely to end on a on a cultural note, uh, which, of course, has huge uh, historical significance as well. Uh, so the centenary of the Nobel Prize, W.B. Yeats being the first Irish person to win the prize, which, of course, had only been established in 1901, I think. But it just brought such great um, sort of sense of importance, uh, sense of acceptance for Ireland by the world, a welcome to the Irish Free State after such a long struggle, such so many difficulties. And here were the Nobel Academy recognising Ireland through its great writer, William Butler Yeats. Uh, so in a way, I think it's a lovely ending to the, the decade of centenaries, which has been so important 
uh, to Ireland in the last number of years. Exactly. And rather than ending on kind of the low note of the civil war coming to an end, instead you have Ireland joining the League of Nations and taking her place among the nations of the world. Yates getting this international recognition and the recognition for Ireland. And it's a more positive, uplifting note. Absolutely. And I mean, it's not even that this is a revisionist approach that we look back and say, oh, well, that was actually what was going on there. William Butler Yates himself was well aware uh, that this award was to him and on behalf of of the state and the new energy and the new direction uh, that was coming uh, forward as, uh, you know, following on from the formation of the Foundation of the Free State and so on. And I think he was probably very proud of that uh, as much as he was uh, for his poetry and, of course, for his plays that were very important to him and the whole uh, tradition of of drama and theatre in Ireland. Now, you had the the 28th Yates Winter School uh, running this weekend. I think it just ended today and you had uh, great speakers Friday, Saturday, Sunday, uh, different talks. And it is part of the series of events that you have running throughout the year. Absolutely. I mean, the the most of the events that, that will relate to the Nobel Prize will take place in the second half of the year, largely because, uh, as you said at the beginning, uh, the Nobel Prize was awarded in November. Well, it was actually announced in November and then he received it in December. So we will run the bulk of our events uh, from June on. But of course, we kick off uh, at, at the Winter School, which is a, a collaboration with uh, Sligo Park Hotel, who've been running the Winter School for 28 years now, which is a great achievement. Uh, and and of course, it's always around the time of Yates' death to this winter school. Uh, so it's great to always be able to start the year and, and people come back and back for the winter school. It's a lovely way to break a weekend with some, you know, just enough, uh, almost like a small school, a tiny school, uh, you know, five or six events, and then you go away refreshed. Um, so we're delighted that during the Nobel year, you know, we'll be running events, we hope, with through schools with with Heritage Week, we hope with we're hoping to confirm um, with the Nobel Academy, uh, we'll be doing something with the National Library uh, and various other organisations through the year. Um, work things for young people as well as for as for you know mature poets and so on. Uh, something for everyone, and we're delighted also to say that Paul Muldoon. Uh, will be leading a two-day event in uh, at the very beginning of December to celebrate the great tradition of poetry in Ireland. Uh, you know, we've never been we've never been without our poets in the city, and I think it's really important in this year that we acknowledge the importance of that as it continues right up to right now. And you have that wonderful Yates building in the heart of Sligo where you have that permanent Yates exhibition and uh, mm. the Hyde Bridge Gallery on the first mm. floor and uh, it's, it's, it's a wonderful way of bringing the, the life and the work of Yates to, 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 uh, to various audiences, Irish and international. Yeah, it's a very mixed audience that comes in which is what makes it such a fascinating place to work when you're meeting the members of the public. You know, you get people who literally make a pilgrimage. They come from India, they come from Australia, they come from Canada. They say, I've saved for years, I've waited all my life to come to Sligo. And I call them the Yates Pilgrims. Um, and then you have people passing the door who see the sign and come in. You get school groups, we get university groups, uh, we get students from the local Atlantic Technological University. So there's a huge range uh, of people and because it's small, uh, we're able to give a very personal touch. So we engage with our visitors very much. It's not a press a button experience. Uh, and we like to keep it that way. It's quite intensive, but it works. And we changed our exhibition last year to call it The Poetic Mind of William Butler Yeats. And very much it's a visual journey to explain to people the influences and inspirations that were important to Yeats, that made Yeats the poet that he became throughout the phases of his fairly long life, uh, dying at the age of 73. 
And what we've noticed is that in going back and emphasizing and talking more about the poetry, we find people more engaged, actually buying more poetry books, which is really interesting. Um, we also keep the history of the family and the extraordinarily important connection with Sligo, of course. Um, and we have a lovely small room upstairs with artworks from all members of the family, including Jack's wife, um, Mary Cottenham Yates, or Cottie as she was always known. People really enjoy going in there and being surrounded in a small room, almost surrounded by all this Yatesian work in one small place. It seems to have a real connection for people. And Susan, why do you think we love Yeats and his poetry so much? Is it because it's so eminently quotable and there are so many beautiful phrases and lines? Or do we have, because like, there's a, certainly a, a resonance and a connection for Irish people. I think there's a resonance and connection for people around the world as well that he has that connection that not not every poet has. Yeah, it's it's one of those great questions that you almost come up with a different answer to every day of the week. I mean, in a way, absolutely what you've said, some of those beautiful phrases, uh, some of those lovely ideas about landscape, um, about the sky, about the light, uh, always touch people, particularly when you think about Japanese people who love Yeats live in a very crowded society. I've been lucky enough to visit once and I realise how extraordinarily tight the space is around them. They step into Sligo and they can't believe the extraordinary enormity of the sky and and, and the sea. And suddenly those words in Yeats' poetry kind of lift them to another place. It's like a dreamlike thing that that goes on with that poetry. So there's a sense of escapism too, I think, for people. And, of course, there's the great uh, work after the Nobel Prize was awarded uh, as he's grappling with with death, with life, and with the concept of life and death. Some of those very spare, darker poems, you know, really reach into people's souls and speak to them. So there's such a range of work going on there as well that I think he allows a lot of different people to connect in a different way. And I always say to people... Don't worry if you only have three or four poems that you like. You don't have to like the entire canon. Take the bits that resonate with you and go with them. And maybe you'll find some more after that. Don't don't be overwhelmed. Just because he's a Nobel poet doesn't mean he can't be your poet too. I think that's absolutely brilliant advice for our listeners. And if people want to find out more about Yates Society Sligo and the events taking place, just go to their website, yatesociety.com. You can just Google Yates Society Sligo. You'll find out all the details. And my thanks to Susan O'Keefe, the director of Yates Society Sligo, for joining me tonight to talk to me about all of these wonderful events. Susan, thanks so much. Thanks so much, Patrick. We'll be back after this break where we'll be rejoined by our panel where we'll discuss Yeats's capacity for reinvention, his politics in the 1930s and his remarkable legacy. So stay with us here on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we look at the life and legacy of W.B. Yeats. I'm delighted to be rejoined by Professor Roy Foster of the University of Oxford, Dr. Lucy Collins of UCD, Dr. Adrian Patterson of the University of Galway and Professor Margaret Harper of the University of Limerick. Lucy, there seems to be a very clear way that Yeats always reinvents himself and has this capacity for always reinventing himself. Yes, I think um, what we heard from Adrian about the importance of collaboration um, and this tension that exists in Yeats between um, the individual, the great artist, the great talent and the collaborative or the collective is really important in terms of uh, developing Yeats's idea of change, change as essential to life, change as essential to art. So that idea that um, both... Uh, the artist through interaction with others, through interaction with collaborators or indeed with their social sphere, with um, uh, the wider kind of political world is always changing their art, is always evolving their thought. Um, and I think that's come you know, through this whole discussion, that sense of the, the myriad 
elements of Yeats's engagement um, and all of those being important because all of them are interacting in his poems. Um, and we see, if we, you know, if we were looking at Yeats across his whole lifetime, we're essentially looking perhaps at four very different poets or perhaps more, um, both in terms of uh, his formal grasp, uh, his how he uses his aesthetic ideas in the poetry, the kind of audiences and readers uh, he's trying to reach at different points in his career. So uh, to me, part of Yeats's legacy really is that very dynamic approach to his artistic life and that sense of reinventing himself as an artist and therefore um, in many ways broadening his appeal to readers, not just of his own time, but also today and, and in the future. Roy, and yet when it came to politics and rereading your your work on, on Yeats in the 1930s, there seemed to be a, a narrowness there and some uncomfortable reading about his dalliance with the blue shirts, with his views on eugenics, with his views on, on the masses and the elites. It's, it's some uncomfortable reading when you dig into uh, his thinking in the 1930s. Yeah, um just before I come to that, I'd just like to force something that Adrian and Lucy have both said, which is art and art in its widest sense. Because I think one reason why Yeats is so attuned to us and to the wider world of art is that, like Proust, visual art means as much to him almost as written art. And the importance of a vision, and Margaret's work and others who've edited have shown us this, is that he takes movements in painting as as a, almost as important or as important as movements in any other great cultural shift. It's this way he has of apprehending the zeitgeist. And I think that's something we should think about. And I, I am going to come on to the politics because that's part of it too. Yeats has an uncanny sense of the importance of what's happening at the moment it's happening in cultural and I think in political terms. When he goes to Paris in the 1890s, he doesn't speak French. He manages to go to one of the only performances of Villiers de Lille Adam's play, Axel, he manages to go to Alfred Jarry's Ubuvois. He manages to go and visit Verlaine. He visits Mallarmé, who unfortunately isn't in. But he is, he is able to scent out the, the absolute, what's happening at the, at, the, at the cultural moment. And in a sense, he's very well attuned to politics too. And the way he responds to 1916 shows us that. And the, intelligent, the political intelligence in his political poems after the rising is to me extraordinarily astute not just Easter 1916 with its famous ambiguities but poems like The Rose Tree plays like The Dreaming of the Bones he has a very strong sense of the moment and the the moment in the late 1920s in Italy where he's living half the year well not half the year but in the winters is of course the moment of Mussolini's fascism and he cannot not be interested in this and he takes it on, he, he shapes it in his own way, very peculiarly. He thinks that Mussolini's objective is to allow a leisured life to the creative classes, which isn't how most unfortunate Italians would have seen the project of fascism. But it's, it's part of the reason why Yeats adopts an interest in fascism. He is not so interested in German fascism. And I think much of the work that's been done on Yeats's political interest in the 1930s absolves them of direct support for Nazism. I don't think that's relevant. He does accept a prize from the, from the city of Frankfurt, the Goethe Medal, when that city is being ruled, governed by a Nazi cabal. But I think he accepted it because of Goethe, not because of the Nazis. He, he, he didn't go to Germany. He, unlike Italy, he didn't know Germany. His interest in the blue shirts is obviously an important part of this sense of, well, the, the importance to him of public life and of being in public life. Also, uh, worry, which was shared by many others about what was happening to Irish politics in the early 30s with the irredentist IRA element re, rebranded into Fianna Fáil and coming back into power. There, there's a sense in which Yeats' opinions at the time were probably shared by far more people who would admit it later on. Um, the aesthetic interest in fascism is certainly there, along with many other writers, including, though much more rapidly in the case of Ezra Pound and Wyndham Lewis, both of whom Yeats, of course, knew. But his interest in right-wing politics was, in a sense, 
mediated through his sense of, as I say, the zeitgeist. And by the late 30s, he is certainly turning away from it. His correspondence with people like Ethel Manon shows us that very clearly. There have been attempts to brand him much more closely with a fascist identification in the 30s, but I don't think it works if you look at his his letters, his opinions, right up to the end of his life. It's a, It's an early 30s moment which he shared with a great many people. And while not in the least defending it, it is of a piece, I think, with his fascination with the role of violence in public and indeed in general life. His dislike of the British Empire, which increases with age, and his interest in what's happening as a reaction to the the post-nationalist moment and the disillusionment of many with what the Free State had become by the early 1930s. Margaret, we're almost out of time, so I'm going to leave the last word to you. I think it gives an, a sense of how much richness there is in the life of WB Yeats and in the work that, you know, we've only scratched the surface of some parts of, of, of the story and that we probably could do a show on Yeats every week for the next year <laughs> and we'd still have more material for 2024 uh, because there is so much there. Yes, it's true. He... Um was, as my colleagues have been stressing, an extraordinarily restless artist. He didn't find something he was good at and stay at it. He didn't decide that Ireland was one thing and then remain in that position. He was willing to change his mind. He was writing powerful verse and drama until he was... I mean, literally, on his deathbed. And part of that is this, um, an amazing openness to the next idea. But also, as has been alluded to, a a belief in which he never wavered in the importance of art mattering in in public and in private. So you have uh, the appeal of the next thing, the the wild thing, the chaotic thing, change. And you also have a, a commitment, a deep commitment to what's essential, to order, to form. So he would he would have put it uh, he would have called it the many and the one. And these things are always in a uh, dynamic relationship with each other. Well, I think that's an excellent note on which to end our discussion tonight. My thanks to my brilliant panel of experts for bringing the life of WB Yeats to us. Professor Roy Foster of the University of Oxford, Dr Lucy Collins of UCD, Dr Adrian Patterson of the University of Galway, Professor Margaret Harper of the University of Limerick, and we also heard from Susan O'Keefe, the Director of Yeats Society Sligo. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marais O'Sullivan, and to Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week so hope you can join us then we've been talking history good night